0: Speaking of reliability, a podcast with good friends talking with you about reliability engineering topics. Welcome to Speaking of Reliability. This is Fred Schenkelberg,
1: and this is Chris Jackson. And Fred and I were talking about um, many of the organizations we see out that see in our professional lives who purchase components and systems from third party suppliers as most organizations that make magnificent things need to do but essentially blame reliability issues or assign reliability problems to suppliers so when we hypothetically ask these organizations well why aren't you helping your suppliers make things that are more reliable their stock response is something like well we pay them to do it why would we help them do their job and That's all well and good if you are not interested in making reliable stuff. If if your mission is to, amongst other things, make an amazing product and implicit with that is to make an amazingly reliable product, then your job is to do whatever needs to happen for it to be reliable. And as capitalism goes so far in terms of how the market responds to your demands and selfish needs... If your market, which if your suppliers can't do what you'd like them to do, do you give up? And the organizations who don't give up are the ones who make reliable stuff.
0: And one of the, it was, a, it was close to a question I got the other day. It was, you know, and we and I've said it, I don't know how many times, and I think we've talked about it a couple of times, is if you get a, a, a failure back from the field, you get your device back and you take it apart a little bit and you find that there's a component that's failed. And Mm -hmm. and we isolate it to that component, and then and then ship it back to the supplier and twiddle our thumbs while we wait to see what their solution is and how they're going to make it right, right. Right. Um, And we often say, or at least I know, I always say, don't send it back to the supplier. (laughs) As 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 an industry, at least in the electronics industry, and and I've seen it to some extent in other industries. Is that we've driven the prices down so much and driven this cost pressure, especially for consumer products so far, that the suppliers are running on a th- on a shoestring budget and they don't have a resource center just to do failure analysis and and a bunch of scientists to troubleshoot your particular issue
1: mm-hmm. and
0: and what I you know Simon Casey when you sit in with the suppliers, they're saying hey, we make inductors. We make a lot of different inductors. And we had no idea where customers are putting them. We put them on reels of 10,000 and they go to these big houses that put them onto circuit boards. And we don't know if they're going into satellites or into submarines. We just don't right. know. And so w- there's too many variations of this. you know. And, and from their point of view, it's, it's like, we appreciate it when somebody shares with us what's working or not working or whatever, and it gives us ideas for new products. If to help you solve the problem, we genuinely would like to make a good product for you. But the criteria for one that goes on a bicycle versus one that goes under the engine hood of an engine is so different, and nobody's saying this is how they're using it. You know, we know they're going in all these different things, but. We don't get data back. We don't get information back. We don't get usage rates back. And and we have s- literally thousands of different applications and people are still buying them. So we're and the cost pressure so high that we just can't go get this information. Right. <laughs> you know, we just don't have the money to do it.
1: And it's, um, and, and there are suppliers who don't want to be told that, uh, things they make aren't amazing um so that, that's the other end of the scale as well well
0: there's that too yeah yeah well but, it must be your fault or, yeah there's five standard answers
1: <laughs> but right i mean there's a lot of really good uh, in some of the courses i teach there, there's a not a survey but there was interviews done anonymous anonymous interviews of automobile component supplier ceos for lack of a better term mm-hmm. people who own the supplier networks companies mm-hmm that made the washers and the bolts and the steering pinions for vehicles. And they talk about how Japanese manufacturers treated them versus how Western automobile manufacturers treated them. And then Japanese, they always say working for Japanese automobile uh, manufacturers is hard. It's not easy. It's hard. It's challenging. They challenge you to make better stuff. But when you do make better stuff, they reward you through additional orders, and in many cases, they pay you more for it. Mm -hmm. So, um, and they, while they say it's hard and challenging, they enjoy that. They say that's that's a real. They enjoy working in those scenarios. Whereas the Western automobile manufacturers, it's often how low can how how much uh, how low can you uh, charge how much how little money can you charge us.
0: And if there's any problems, then you get fined or penalized. Right. And if you change anything to make it better, they're not paying for that. That comes out of you. Right. <laughs> you
1: know. And it's you know, we've talked at length on, on previous podcasts. There's a reason why a lot of Western, Western automobile manufacturers aren't making cars anymore, like passenger vehicles because they are getting the pants beaten off from the marketplace when it comes to reliability and affordability. And so they're just making trucks or they're just making other vehicles now. There's it's not, there's no shift in sentiments. Everyone, Most people still drive you know, sedans. Um, if they were able to make money off selling sedans, they'd still be selling sedans. But there's, there's a, we are aware, well aware of automobile manufacturers who traditionally used to make sedans who said, you know what, we're not, we're not doing that anymore, but sedans are still being bought left, right and center. It's yeah. not because there's a change in marketing. It's because they can't compete anymore.
0: Yeah. It's one of those, the logic though of saying, Oh, we're going to blame the supplier is kind of this scenario. We have a component and it's bad. Um, we'll blame the supplier and try to get that fixed. Um, it, 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 you know my argument all the time has been well that's great if you can help your supplier understand it and make it better and and right. you know it's kind of let's work together and get a good product and we talked about that recently but the mm-hmm. idea is is that the customer doesn't care if Not. this widget or sprocket or nut came from xyz or abc corporation or what's the acme corporation you know um if it if it comes if it's your nameplate on what they bought, they're going to call you. Mm-hmm. Even though every single component and piece of material in there is from somebody else, they're going to call you because they bought it. They sent you money, not, not to Shiba, who made some exotic component of your system. They don't care, not- <laughs> you know? And it, and it, it just baffles me is and I usually use that argument or that line of reasoning, saying you got to design it right. You got to design it such that it's robust because suppliers are going to have variation. It, it, unless you spend an inordinate amount of money to work with your suppliers and and upgrade their capabilities and do all those other stuff, um, you need to make a design that's very robust. And, and there's a well, that costs more. <laughs> argument I got back from design teams. Well, that costs too much. And I said, Well, then you. Had better have a good customer service system in place. Well, that costs too much. It's
1: like, oh, bother. Moving on. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, the scenario you described where it costs an, an inordinate amount of money to help get your suppliers up to speed in terms of what, whatever you deem acceptable quality and reliability performance is, that's not always the case. I mean, that's not at all many suppliers out there who actually crave the feedback you're talking about because, like you say, they no often don't get it. They don't know if their thing is being used in a submarine or um, a fridge. Um, yeah, or so, a refrigerator
0: on a submarine. Yes, yeah, so there you go. <laughs>
1: um, but there are plenty of, uh, of suppliers out there who just need a little bit of feedback and uh, they, they, they want to make you happy because if they make you happy, that's the long-term supplier-customer um, relation, relationship. Yeah
0: it's it's a rare supplier that I've actually had a chance to talk to, you know, folks on their technical team or, or design team or, you know, outside the sales group, basically, um, that really, I mean, they really do want to make a good product and they want to yeah. make it work. And being forced into a commodity business kind of thwarts that thing. And part of it is that over time, some of these companies just turn into that's what they do and they don't answer the phone anymore kind of thing. Mm-hmm. The, but the ones that, in vast majority of people you talk to, they don't want to make a crap product. They don't want to make, you know, do something that doesn't solve problems for other people. I don't believe that is why people get into business. No, they, I agree. they want to solve problems. They want to help make the world better. All those kinds of things.
1: i with engineers.
0: Yeah, yeah. And and so part of it is as well the there's a dichotomy between where's the how do you make it more reliable? How do you make a product that is actually reliable? And I don't know, we this is our 777 770th, 770 is the uh, mm. episode. And probably a good 700 of them have been on you got to design it in. <laughs> you got and it's you can't just grab a, a part off the shelf and assume that it's going to work there's a whole lot of where's this come from what's our relationship with this especially when you know it's a critical component or a, a essential system part of your system or you're you're pushing the the margins on this thing or you're doing whatever or you just don't know it takes some thinking and due diligence to understand is this the right part for this system and part of that discussion, which I see gets missed too many times, is, is it robust? Will it handle all the variations that are going to be seen from the supply chain, not just the immediate supplier, but their suppliers, plus the consumers? Where are they going to use it? What's this going to be used at? And so that logic, though, of If every design team that's creating a component or material set or a a finished product or integrating it into a a network at your office is all looking to create a reliable system or product or system. But abdicating that, assuming everybody else is doing their job. So I don't have to is where it falls apart.
1: Well, it's not assuming. Yeah, I I agree. But that's where it comes down to, you have a choice if you you're in an organization who relies on suppliers to help you make your amazing product is your job is your ultimate responsibility to one make an amazing product or two be able to assign blame should your product not perform you you want you, you're uh, you're in one of those two camps you can't have a foot in each one yep. you are either focused on making an amazing product or you already know who to blame when things go wrong. And, and if you're focused on an amazing product and your supplier marketplace is not where your company needs it to be in order to make your amazing product, then you have to do something about it. You either accommodate the fact that the market isn't creating the quality prop components you need. So you design a robust system to accommodate, it, accommodate that or you start manufacturing these components in-house or you start trying to find those suppliers and they are out there who want to work with customers like you who will provide feedback through testing work together to try and you know continually improve components so that they will very quickly become whatever you deem them to be in terms of quality and everything else that's option one option two is strictly rely on the point of sale standards testing whatever whatever so that you can essentially have some bureaucratic process procedure that allows you to anoint a batch of products as good at the point of sale, and if they're not good, then you can blame the supplier straight away. That's a fundamentally different culture. You can't. They're not the same. They don't overlap. You're either focused on making amazing product, amazing products, or you've already worked out who you're going to blame when it turns out they're not.
0: And it, it, the hard part is, is that sometimes it's the sil- different silos of our organization. The the development team really wants to take ownership and make a great product Yep. up until they hit print on the final design, <laughs> <laughs> right? The old adage of, you know, throw it over the wall kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. I, and I've run into that even recently where, the design was great. They got all their prototypes. They did all this evaluation. The supplier was working with them real great, you know, and, they, and it was the uh, – once it got into manufacturing and it was being outsourced for manufacturing, part of the contract on page 47 and paragraph 2, you know, buried in fine print was um, – As the supply chain evolves and changes, which it will do for the thousand components we're putting into this product, um, the supplier has the ability, without having to do anything, change components. And so as soon as they got the product, they did a 100% change of every component in the design every single component with and so they had approved vendor lists and everything else but because of this clause this supplier had the ability to pick uncle sam's uh component factory down in the my uncle's garage over across the street um and so they out they changed the entire bill of material to their own suppliers and the product never worked it it just never worked. They shipped right. a couple thousand of these and they couldn't get any of them to work. And they, and so the supplier is blaming the design. <laughs> it's like, okay. But, you know, it, it's that's the extreme case. That is an actual case. It was a camera. A company made this cool new digital camera that was early in the digital camera age and they could have owned that market Mm-hmm. got completely screwed by the supplier. Right. And the supplier kind of screwed themselves too. They could have been the make, manufacturer of this new, hot, cool new product. And they were looking at shaving the margin. They could double their profit if they just got all different components.
1: That's just incredibly stupid. <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> so.
0: yeah. Uh, and it's, it came down to contract language. And I'm sure it got, last I heard of it, it was all locked up in lawyer t- in stuff but their company never ended up making digital cameras again
1: it's funny how that happens a lot in some of the things we we have to uh parachute ourselves into and it's and, it, and the thing is i think failures often uh, failures need to be sort of romanticized in order to for us to actually acknowledge them as failures. so if you look at the Deepwater horizon for example where a monstrous oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. That's a failure. Mm-hmm. It's it's uh, it's spectacular. And um, we look at what happened. You go, oh, can you believe that a bunch of really qualified engineers thought this a process was good to go? No, I can't believe it. But this is this off. Off they went. Yep. That's what. That's the sort of failure which really sticks in our mind. But failure is lost opportunities. Like what you referred, what you just described, you could have been the market leader, the um, the initial impetus behind a completely new line of products like that digital camera, mm-hmm. or you could have been that brand new um, manufacturer of wearable smart devices, now that example. Yeah, um,
0: yeah.
1: Th- they're failures that we don't often really chalk up to our experience base. Firstly, you need to be... You never hear about them as a member of the general public in the first place, but um, there are failures occurring every single day when opportunities to be successful are simply not realised. And sometimes it's easy to to not realise that you've just failed. Um, so I, I'm not entirely sure about the background behind that that uh, digital uh, camera um, opportunity, but I believe it was essentially an arm of a much bigger company. Is that is that
0: mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that that company potentially, well, a lot of companies I've been involved with when they miss contracts or they miss opportunities like that, it just gets buried down in the narrative and the psyche as quickly as possible, so we don't remember that was a monstrous failure
0: well yeah there were i mean I, that was one of my habits of when I'd meet a new team and you, we'd go to lunch someplace and usually, and conversation would typically be at least the way I would start it was so what are the The myth, you know, I didn't use the word mythical, but what were what are some recent big failures or big disasters you guys had to deal with? And there are almost always people would remember the top three, Ah. (laughs) you know, Um, and then I'd say, well, well, there's probably more than that. And then the next round of the table, everybody would have a different story for number four, and and they were different longevity in the company and different experiences and different parts of projects they worked right. on and so right. on. But that that list of what was remembered was typically only three deep for most people is part of the culture. Oh we no right. we never need to do that again. But it would evolve. If you go back to the same company and you're talking to a different group of people, it would be a different set of three that are top of mind. It was mm-hmm. it was fascinating. Um, but the idea of romanticizing you know, or making them epic um, is, there's a lot of value to that. It helps people to celebrate failures and not shy away from them, not ignore them and everything else. It's making something reliable in part is making it so it doesn't fail. Um, I don't think it's a one-to-one correlation. I think you have to make something that actually does what a customer is expecting it to do, (laughs) and maybe a bit more, which is part of reliability uh, in my mind. But it's all that amazing product, but also one that doesn't fail. I, you can make a reliable product that fails and customers will be okay with it if it's really good product and solves a critical problem for them and and they can get back up and running in a reasonable sense. Uh, I think there are products that we deal with, like a car <laughs> that we know is going to fail. And when it does, when the muffler falls off, then we go get another one, You know, fix it. But if we couldn't fix it, if we had to throw away the whole vehicle because the, the the wrap or the plastic that's on my steering wheel uh gets really Teflon slick, so I can't hold on to it enough to even make a turn. Um, and I have to get a whole new car if that's the problem, well then that's not a reliable system. So anyway, I, I digress. Yeah. But but making something reliable, um it's it's not just this team that I'm working with right now is that part of it is, is the suppliers and our customers all have to be part of that process. And, but at the end of the day, it's usually whoever gives you money is the one that you're expecting to make it reliable. (laughs) And I think we codified that too many lawyers got involved here in the U S anyway, and now we Mm -hmm. can blame other people for it. Yeah. It's uh
1: that's a, I mean, the rest of the world is starting to move in that direction, but the clear leader is, yeah, the US when it comes to liability. And, and, um, I think you talked about a, a colleague or a friend who works in that space in the legal industry and says, you know, has no idea why anyone tries to oh, yeah. um, design any new product because there is, uh, they're just liable for so many bad things that, that happen. Yeah. Before have,
0: you start, you stand up your manufacturing line, you got to hire a lawyer. Right. Kind of his point it's like oh bother yeah
1: well it's the same thing you know like people have debates about if someone if someone drinks too much alcohol and then drives a vehicle and then causes an accident and in the worst case scenario someone gets killed is it their responsibility or is the bartender at the bar who served them those drinks also partly responsible on oh, like- and
0: the guy that put the alcohol in the bottle too i think that <laughs> that's where the real money is so they, i'm quite sure some lawyers figured out a way to sue the you know well they did it with tobacco companies we sued but then there was finding out that they were tampering with stuff and not telling anybody but
1: yeah i think tobacco is a bit different because they yeah. were deliberately making stuff
0: up Um, yeah yeah and uh, you know vast majority of the time and vast majority of the people we get to work with and 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 listeners of the show get to work with do honestly want to make a good product or a good system or a good element of it and i think enabling that to occur is what i think is the gist of this message is that even though you're just one part of this overall process of making amazing products is that we all have a role to play to make a reliable product or a reliable system. And whether we're creating capacitors or the fluid that goes in the capacitor or the supercomputer, uh, all those decisions all along the line need to be reinforced and enabled to occur. And I I think too many of our, and we hit a couple of points, but the contract language is just one of the tip things that erode that process. And uh, so I think um, something to be aware of, definitely.
1: I mean, do you want to, make something amazing or do you want to know who to blame if it's not because it won't be
0: (laughs) exactly so if you want to blame us give us a call (laughs) head over to ascendoreliability.com slash go slash s-o-r and you can find a couple of ways to get in touch with us chris and i and the other hosts of the show are available on linkedin and our about pages on Ascendo. lots of ways for you to join the conversation and uh like we say at the end of nearly every episode for the last 700 plus, um, let us know which is what's on your mind, what questions you have. And if you have any comments or thoughts on a previous episode that we look for that too, uh, we'd love to hear from you. So Chris, uh, I, I'm not going to go read contracts today. That's just too depressing. <laughs> <laughs> sorry. Yeah. But anyway, have a great rest of the day. We'll talk to you soon. And, um, Uh, Stay safe.
1: You
0: too, Fred. Cheers. Thanks for listening to Speaking of Reliability. We invite you to join the conversation. If you have a question or a topic that you think we should discuss in a future show, please let us know. You can find a comment box below the episode show notes, or just leave a note as part of a review on iTunes.